Hello and you're very welcome to the 7th episode of the Life in Politics podcast. Joining me today is Fine Gael TD that represents the Dublin Ratdown area, Neil Richmond. Neil is also a spokesperson on European affairs for his party. So Neil, thanks for taking the time to talk to me and um, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Yoshin. So just to start, Neil, how have you found your first year as a TD when it has been such strange times for our country? Yeah, it's been it's been seriously challenging. Um, I spent a long time trying to become a TD, but the pandemic has not only put everything into perspective, but it's changed how we do the work completely, even though ordinary simple things, like everyone, we're doing an awful lot of our work virtually, the inability to get out canvassing, get out meeting people, going to events. It's very different, but you just have to adjust and try your best with it. So you'd much rather to be out meeting people, would you? Yeah, absolutely. That's the nature of any any political action. It, it is people and the opportunity to meet people at community events, to visit them in their home, to have a clinic, to have those sort of real engagements gives you an ability to, to, to work for people to the best year levels. Now, there are some things, certainly we do a lot of travelling for meetings, so being able to do a lot of them via Zoom, I hope we'd be able to, going forward, at least hold on to an element of that. Um, some of that can be very productive, but it's it's not the be-all and end-all. You were born and raised in Ballantyre. What did you like to do in your spare time when you were growing up? Ah, yeah, the usual as a kid was just playing out in the road with my neighbours and then I would have played a lot of sports when I got a little bit older, mainly rugby, but a, a couple of sports. And then as I got even older into college, I uh, picked up a bit of a travelling bug into railing, going to Africa and lots of different countries. But usually the standard things, either playing a match or going to a match and and the odd trips to the cinema and whatever else, the usual sort of useful activities, slightly different era, was pre-mobile phone and pre-social media. I believe you attended Taney Parish Primary School? I did in Dundrum. I was the youngest of four to go to that that school, and it's it's right in the heart of my constituency, so even nearly 30 years on, I still find myself going back there quite regularly. And then you moved on to Wesley College. What memories do you have of your time there? Yeah, again, I really enjoyed my, my six years in school and it's something that I speak to a lot of school groups. It's only when you get to a certain age like I am now that those six years you spend in secondary school are probably the most impactful and it's part of how you're growing up. But I had a great time there, the highs and the lows. As I said, I was the youngest of four to go there. I had a great bunch of friends I'm still in touch with. So many of them today played a, a lot of sports, did the odd musical and had really great opportunities. And I know I was... I was very lucky to get an opportunity to go to school there and send me on my way thereafter. So would your interest in rugby have come from your time attending school there? No, it, it much earlier than that. My late father was a big rugby man. He was president of our local club and he had me down to mini rugby when I was about six years old and played since. And then my brother, who was about 10 years older than me, was a great rugby player and going to watch him play matches would have certainly planted the seed. And I was very lucky. I went to my first Ireland match in 1991 and have missed very few ever since. What did your parents work as when you were a child? Uh, my father was a sales rep. He sold roofing um, around the country, across the island. And then my mother... Actually, she had to give up her job in the in the 70s due to the marriage bar. She was originally working in banking, but she, she stayed at home with the kids 
for most of it and then later on in life she did a return to work course uh, with FOSS and then spent the last 10 years of her life working for Crocra. You also attended college and UCD, graduating with a BA in history and an MA in politics. What did you do immediately after leaving college? So literally the day I submitted my thesis, uh, the day after, I got on a plane and moved to Brussels where I started an internship, a political internship with the European People's Party. And then I went on to work for Gay Mitchell, MEP in the European Parliament for just under two years. So where did the interest in politics come from? Yeah, it's kind of was a slow burner. So we would have been a very aware household. My parents weren't really party political. My my father would have been the typical floating voter. My mother would have been a, a member of Fine Gael briefly, although I didn't know that until I had actually joined. But so into we'd always would have had the papers in the house. We would always discuss the issues of the day. The Northern Irish peace process and the Good Friday Agreement was certainly a big part of my of my childhood when I was in secondary school. And then when I was in first year in college, I decided I was going to vote in my first general election. I was 19 and I voted for Fine Gael locally. I voted for Olivia Mitchell. And it was a terrible general election for Fine Gael. They lost a number of seats. And I went into Ireland with a couple of friends that summer. And by the end of it, on a long train journey somewhere in Italy, a friend of mine said to me, look, I'm sick of you talking about it. If you feel passionately about it, why don't you go do something? So I got involved in Young Fine Gael in my second year in college, signed up in the Freshers' Tent in UCD. And you were then first elected to the council for Dunleary, Ratdown area in 2009. Yeah, so I'd worked in politics for a good while. I'd been very active in the party locally and then on a youth level. And the opportunity, lots of people love to say, well, I was asked to run, but if you want to run, you want to run. And the opportunity presented itself. I managed to come through a selection convention and ran for election. And we won two out of four seats. It was a good day for the party as a whole, but it was a particularly good day local. And, and it was a, a huge honour to get elected to represent my local community. You were then re-elected in 2014, which led to the Taoiseach appointing you as one of Ireland's nine delegates to the European Committee of Regions. How did you find that role? Yeah, that was probably one of the most enjoyable and interesting um, roles I've had in my political, my elected political career so far. The Committee of the Regions, it's where county councillors and local politicians from across Europe come together in Brussels to discuss issues and areas of, of common purpose and where we can direct European funding to local initiatives. And I was sad to leave it, but um, certainly it was a huge rewarding couple of years and it just showed the, the power and spread of uh, European influence in every part of the European Union beyond capital cities and um, really, really was so fortunate to be appointed by Enda Kenny to that position. You then moved on to becoming a senator in April 2016 when you were elected to the Senate on the Labour panel, where you, where you became spokesperson on European affairs for your party. Was that off the back of your role in the European Committee of Regions? Yeah, between having previously worked in the European Parliament, having served in the Committee of the Regions, and generally always having a strong opinion on Europe, um, and Kenny was leader of the party, and he went to the senators, who'd like to be on what committee, what portfolio would you like as, spokesman, as spokesperson? And I was the only one who said I wanted to be on the European Affairs Committee. Um, it was kind of seen as a slightly less glamorous one, but within a couple of months of being appointed, uh, Brexit happened, and that opened up a whole new world of work for me. 
Just before I move on to Brexit, do you think that Janet plays an important role in our society? Um, I do. I will admit, uh, O'Sheen, straight off the bat, that whilst I served in the Senate, I had also previously voted to abolish the Senate. Um, okay. And I stand over that decision. Uh, I see no contradiction. But I also respect the will of the Irish people to retain it. It can play a role. It needs desperately needs reform both electorally and in the way it carries out its function um, but one of the reasons I suppose I declared that we should abolish it was because of the lack of reform and the continuing lack of emphasis on reform but it is a good forum it's produced some very important people to Irish civic life and we have it now and we just have to make the best of it What would you change? Well, I think the way that it's elected is absolutely archaic. Um, the fact that it's only elected by politicians or graduates of certain universities, I think we need to open it up. I think there's a huge role for the Shannon to have dedicated seats um, for our diaspora. And certainly even just the way the vocational panels are decided, you know, they're of their time. And when the Shannon, the current Shannon was drafted in the 1930s, I think it needs to be more effective of modern life. Um, and certainly the work it does, I think it, there's a huge scope for it to have specific roles in terms of reviewing legislation rather than just being a, a rubber stamp at times for legislation or indeed a talking shop in other areas. As you mentioned there, you are a critic of Brexit. What impact do you think Britain leaving the EU is going to have in Ireland in the future? It's going to have, it's going to have a huge impact. It already has a huge impact, yeah. Oisin. First and very timely, the most concerning is it's the de destabilising effect that Brexit has had on, on the Good Friday Agreement and the situation in Northern Ireland. But economically, Britain is an important market for Ireland. We now have barriers trade barriers and custom barriers between Britain and the rest of the EU um, and that's going to be a huge difficulty. Britain's economy will suffer greatly because of Brexit and when Britain sneezes unfortunately Ireland um, regularly catches the cold so it's going to re require us to change a lot of things in the way we do in a commercial sense and it's, it's just a really it's a really sad it was a really sad day the Brexit referendum and everything that came thereafter People once labelled said that was all Project Fear, but Project Fear has become Project Reality, and unfortunately, part of that harsh reality is going to and has already started to impact Ireland. As I mentioned at the beginning, you were elected to the Dáil for the first time last year. What memories do you have of your first time being in the Dáil and your first day? Yeah, the first day was was pretty special. Obviously, I'd been in Leinster House a long time, both as a senator and a staff member, but. It was a very rewarding day. It was a really humbling day. I absolutely milked every moment of it because I'd, I'd always wanted to be a TD since I got involved in politics. I knew the huge honour, the huge responsibility. So it was obviously just before the pandemic broke out. So I had my whole family in, including my kids and my nieces and nephew. And we had a, we had a great day. And um, certainly sitting in my seat, being able to vote for a T-shirt, being able to vote for a, a government, it really, um, it really brought that sense of responsibility to the fore. And I must say, in the last year, even though, as we've already discussed, the, the ability to do work has changed greatly and been impacted by the pandemic, um, the huge, the abilities as a TD to impact people's lives for the positive is certainly not lost on me. And I've never been so busy in any job that I've ever had. And it's a really rewarding type of business as well. Is there any ministerial position you would like to hold in the future? 
Well, first and foremost, I'm very happy to be a TD, um, and I hope to stay a TD for a while yet. But if the leader of my party ever saw fit uh, to appoint me to something, certainly the areas I'm interested are quite clear: it's European affairs, foreign affairs, anything to do with trade, enterprise, sport. But I have no, um, I, I have no career plan or or yearning ambition. It's merely a main. It's merely a case of doing your job as best possible, and if an opportunity for for, for advancement comes along, so so good. But every day as a TD is a huge honour. Would you be able to pinpoint your biggest achievements and disappointments as a politician so far? Yeah, well, certainly, like it's one of the real parochial things, but it stood with me that in my first year as a county councillor, way back in '09, I brought the relocation of a secondary school. Um, all the way through the planning process and moved into my area and it's sitting there right across from my house now a, a 350 pupil girls secondary school that it wouldn't have even been on the on the agenda if I hadn't literally brought it through every aspect of the development plan process and it's it's something that I can easily say when I'm out of politics you know that school wouldn't be there if it wasn't for for my work and I, I am quite proud of it and I think it's been a huge um, boost for my community look the disappointments are ten a penny in politics there's obvious times I've lost elections I haven't got selected um, or you'll be pushing an issue and it, it doesn't come as quick as you'd like it or it just doesn't materialise there's certain things I think we missed great opportunities um, you know, I still haven't convinced my colleagues that we need to reduce the voting age to 16 and that's a disappointment for me until we change that um, and there's, there's loads but I must say that in politics you, you have to get over your disappointments be they personal or political very quickly because there's always a new challenge and there's an always an opportunity to, to seek a reward or something else Why do you feel so strongly about bringing the voting age down to 16? I just think it makes sense. Um, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to spend a lot of time um, as a TD and as a senator visiting schools, speaking to schools um, and speaking to young people. And it's quite clear to me that your average 16, 17 year old, they do have a fair assessment of what's going on in the country. You know, they're old enough to pay tax. They're old enough to join the army. Why shouldn't they be old enough to vote? And the advancement of both the curriculum in terms of having politics and society on the leaving search and more importantly the the widespread use of social media your average 17 year old or 16 year old is far more informed today than I would have been um, 20 odd years ago um, because they have the opportunity to engage be it with politicians or issues or campaign groups and they're looking at issues that, um, that, that will and do affect them and they want to have their voice but the most important thing Oshin, and this is something I'm really passionate about is that voting is a habit once you vote once you generally always vote and if we get the system whereby people register to vote when they're 16 when they're still within formal education in secondary school and they might even have the opportunity to vote in a referendum or election before they leave school we have that habit and it's secured as opposed to the situation where you may have left school, you may be in college, you may be working, you may be abroad, and you never get around to vote, and then all of a sudden you're in your mid-30s when you're finally maybe settling down somewhere and you decide you'll register to vote, and you've already lost over a decade of your rights and your responsibility to vote. So that's why I think the more we get it formalised and structured uh, from 16 on, the better for society as a whole, not just those who are 16 and 17. What advice would you give to someone 
a young person running for election for the first time? Yeah, don't let anyone say you're too young. Um, if you're old enough, you're good. If you're good enough, you're old enough. Um, and the most important thing in politics, regardless of party um, or none, is you'll never meet a lazy politician. Um, politicians are always busy. You always have to go, do that extra half hour, knock on that extra door, and just give it your all. Because if you do, you know, a half a half baked approach to a campaign or a half baked approach to anything, you'll never get there. And ultimately, you have to believe in your saying, in why you're running. And the hardest question you'll get on the door is, why should I vote for you? And you have to find your why, and you have to be able to get that across to everyone. The first person you have to convince is yourself. You mentioned not too long ago there that if Fine Gael were to go into government with Sinn Féin, you would lead the party. Why did you say that and why do you feel so strongly about it? Yeah, well, first and foremost, our policies are completely different. Um, and that's the most important thing in politics. I can't find areas of commonality between Fine Gael and Sinn Féin who are a Eurosceptic populist party who push ill-thought-out left-wing economic politics um, and policy positions. I just can't agree with it. Beyond that, I have serious concerns still about how Sinn Féin is run as a party. There's over 10% of their public representatives in the Republic um, resigned citing bullying not so long ago. There's huge issues of how they're financed, how they fundraise and how they're organised. And it's just a party that I th don't think are in any way compatible with my party and we have to be quite clear uh, that it's not really one for us and to be honest I think the vast majority of Sinn Féin supporters would feel the same way in the other direction and people are entitled in this country to have clear choices and it's a clear choice for me that if you vote for Fine Gael you, you don't get Sinn Féin in government but if you want Sinn Féin in government well then don't vote for Fine Gael. If you were to go into government though would you would you would you say you wouldn't be the only one to leave the party? No, and I must stress, I have no desire ever to leave my party. I've been in it all my entire adult life. It's very much part of my life. But I couldn't vote for a Sinn Féin Fine Gael government, and therefore the whip would remove me. I wouldn't necessarily look to leave the party, but I'd be kicked out of the parliamentary party. But I know at least half a dozen colleagues in the current hall who'd have the exact same opinion. Um, I know co colleagues who were in previous throughout my membership who'd feel the same way at all levels and as I said I'd imagine the feeling from each other Sinn Féin that you know there's no animosity there there's plenty of people in Sinn Féin I'd be more than happy to sit down and have a cup of tea with and chat about the issues of the day and if we had to work on a on a constituent case in my in my area I have done with previous Sinn Féin councillors that's not an issue but sharing government with them is just something I'm not prepared to do and you know it's it's okay to disagree with people and make it quite clear yeah. without being utterly disagreeable Did you ever have to vote for something you didn't want to because of the whip system? Yeah all the time um, I'd say I agree with what 75 to 80% of my party or indeed my government put along um, and that's the nature that's why you jo when you join a party you have to compromise and you have to accept that you don't always get your way. But on the flip side, being an independent, you're fairly powerless to actually push what you're really passionate about. And politics is all about give and take and compromise um, within acceptable limits. So there's plenty of times I've voted for budgetary decisions that I wouldn't have been necessarily comfortable with, but I appreciate the importance of. Um, we very rarely have a free vote on any issue. And there's other times that I'll vote for issues that 
it's not that I'm not that I, I'm not comfortable voting with the issue. I'm just not fully informed, and you have to trust um, your colleagues who simply know the issue better, and hopefully they trust me in, on other issues. How do you think the government handled the COVID pandemic? Yeah, look, we'll only really be able to do a fair assessment of that when the pandemic has actually ended. And and despite the light being quite clear at the end of the tunnel and the progress made, we're still very much in the grips of this pandemic. Um, But being realistic, I think it's been as handled as best possible. I don't think any country has got this perfect. um, And not every country faced it with the same challenges that Ireland did. But if you look at the... The comparisons, you know, we've had a pretty low mortality rate. We haven't had a huge economic decline. Um, we've had a relatively low infection rate. Um, there's been occasions where there's been serious concerns. But I think when we give realistic comparisons, the government and indeed, more importantly, the Irish people have approached this pandemic relatively well. And I think we'll look back that this was obviously a horrible time. But at the end of the day, it was a once in a century global pandemic. So would you be in favour of lockdown to try to get the figures down to as low as possible? Well, lockdowns within reason. I, I wish we didn't have to do lockdowns. I don't like them. I don't enjoy them. But, you know, there isn't an easy solution. You can't go for zero COVID. You can't seal the seal the border and just try and do what New Zealand do. And that's just not possible. But equally, the whole let's just live with it and let it rip approach um, that we see in other countries is absolutely reprehensible because, you know, you are dealing with people's lives. Um, and I think the sort of balanced approach of rolling lockdowns, providing good, solid economic supports and allowing, um, you know, progress towards a vaccination rollout is key. Um, and those public health measures will hopefully get us through because there isn't a simplistic answer and the the difficulty that government faces is it can't just look at any one issue, be it one particular activity or one particular strain in isolation. It has to balance the whole social, economic and public health effect. Um, so certainly the approach that's been taken, I do support. There's been tweaks around the edges I would have liked to make. There's frustrations I may have had at certain times. But I think of the whole, I think it's as best as can be expected. And certainly in the coming weeks and months, I'm looking forward to seeing a massive rollout of the vaccines. We're really starting to see those numbers go out and life returning to an element of normal as quickly as possible. And what's your opinion on the government's decision to go by an age-based system for the vaccine rollout? Do you not think the likes of Gardaí, the SNAs, the teachers should be prioritised as since they're frontline workers? Yeah, and certainly when it was announced, I was very concerned, particularly when you look at Gardaí who are having to, you know, manage mandatory hotel quarantine or deal with people who are, you know, protesting against lockdown. But throughout this thing, we've all said we have to be led by the science. And the science is quite clear that if you are 60 and you get COVID, it doesn't matter what job you have, you are far more likely to get very sick and possibly die. But if you are 25 and you happen to be a guard or an SNA or a teacher or a retail worker or a bus driver and you happen to get COVID, you're probably going to be okay. You might have a mild symptoms for a day or two. Um, and when you listen to GPs and they say every time they get a positive test for anyone over 50, their hearts sink because they know that person is going to get very sick. Um, and the secondary, and I think this is lost in discussion a lot, is that this will lead to major efficiencies in terms of the rate. If we were to 
go back to the original plan of going through 15 different cohorts and you know there's cancellations and you're trying to play through it whereas if you do it strictly on an age basis the likelihood is your your average guard or teacher or SNA that's 40 will probably get this vaccination at the same time anyway but we'll actually get through society much quicker and we'll protect those who are far more likely to get sick and possibly face death um, in the short term and I think there is a clear reason for this it's what's happening in Northern Ireland it's what's happening around Europe um, and it's all about getting the most amount of people who are vulnerable vaccinated as best possible and ultimately what makes you vulnerable to COVID isn't necessarily your occupation it's your age and that, define, that defines whether or not you get sick very sick or sadly die so you know you have to listen to the medics and the scientists on this um, and I know a lot of people are disappointed but I think ultimately it will be for the greater good of society and I've had as many people contact me who welcome these changes as people who are disappointed in them. And what did you make of the announcement that only 0.1% cases are believed to be from outdoor transmission? Do you think outdoor dining could be a possibility in the summer? Oh, I absolutely expect us, regardless of that announcement or report, I expect us to be back for outdoor dining mm-hmm. um, in the summer months, hopefully June, possibly July. The vaccination numbers will, will dictate, dictate and allow that. But I think that report poses serious questions that government needs to consider. Ultimately, we do need to see people getting back to sports. The weather's getting better. We need to see, for mental health as well as physical health, we need to see kids back training with their peers. We need to allow people to have that opportunity, be it a game of tennis or round or golf or something that they can do safely, meeting friends outside in larger groups. And it's something that has to be considered. I accept, you know, the counterbalance to that, that, well, you know, because there's been so many restrictions and because the weather was so bad, obviously the numbers are so much lower. But throughout this, the medics have always said ventilation is key. So the more, as the weather's getting better, the more we can have people outside and the more we can do it properly. And that's why I'm really enthusiastic to see new funding for outdoor dining facilities in local areas and more, you know, as a country never mind the pandemic as a country we're not great at maximizing the outdoors as it is uh, compared to continental colleagues and i lived on the continent you know we're obsessed with the weather we're obsessed with rain but you know if you're well prepared why aren't we having rather than having all birthday parties in houses or in parish halls during the summer months why aren't they more happening in public parks or outdoor areas why aren't we having more family get-togethers rather than going necessarily for a meal why aren't we having a barbecue in a public space and um, like people do in the continent of course many of them are living in apartments so they have to spend more time outside and maybe this is an opportunity for us to really approach like the weather isn't that bad in this country we're not we're not in the arctic you know so do you believe not non-contact trend and positive 15 should be in place already if that was isolated and that's the one thing you're doing sure but I do agree with the staggered approach to reopening because as we saw for Christmas once you just drop down a level and let everything happen it creates a huge huge risk and we can't deny that case numbers are still high there's variants swimming around and the situation in the continent is very worrying I think staging it the most important thing is to get our schools back open on Monday and fully open and stay open and then increase yes bring back contact training in pods of 15 um, for minors and under 
allow people to get back to golf courses and tennis courts, allow people to go a little bit further outside their 5K. And if we can do that on a staggered basis, you know, there's a fair chance that we could have a club championship before the end of the summer. And I think that will be really uh, heartening for so many people on so many levels. As you mentioned earlier, you have a keen interest in rugby, but I also believe you're a fan of boxing. Were you participating in these sports up until before COVID restrictions? Uh, yeah, I played my last rugby match in in February um, of last year, so only about okay. three weeks, um, three weeks beforehand, I had a run out. Um, I haven't boxed in years, and the extent of my boxing was a bit of white collar and charity boxing. I did break my nose in one of those fights, um, but trained in a in a couple of really good local boxing clubs in my area for a long time. It's a great. It's a really tough training regime. It's great fitness. But even though I'm getting a little bit older now, I hope um, the next season I'll still I'll be able to get the boots on and play rugby at a very low, slightly older gentleman's level. What position are you at? Uh, I would have been traditionally always played tight head prop. But okay. as I've dropped down the levels and um, been able to pick the team myself, I've managed to slap myself into number eight in the last couple of years so I'll see if I can get away with that for a bit longer Just to finish up Neil have you any targets or aims for the future? Yeah I suppose it's to deliver on a lot of the things we promised in the general election but it's just to play my part in the recovery from the pandemic uh, to play my part in attracting jobs and investment into my constituency and ensuring that the development of my constituency is maintained a couple of new schools needing finishing off big road in the local constituency the expansion of the Lewis and then if I can play my part in what I really want to do and this what I really want to get involved in and have play a part is on the continuing reconcil- reconciliation on this island that will ultimately lead to United Ireland in a peaceful and agreeable manner but that requires a lot of work a lot of engagement and a lot of meetings and whatever little role I can play I won't be I won't be found wanting in terms of dedicating myself to that Thanks for taking the time to talk to me Neil um, hope to speak to you again soon Thanks Thank you Oisin have a good one bye bye Thanks So that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember to subscribe to Life in Politics wherever you get your podcast, so you'll never miss another episode. And you can follow on Twitter at Life in Politics 2. Thank you.